Rufus, how do you feel about timing the market or our timing the market segment that we've been doing? Has it been interesting and fun for you? It's been interesting, but you don't really tell me what you're going to ask me to time the market on beforehand. So it's I'm, I'm flying by the seat of my pants. Well, the timing the market segment and this episode are brought to you by Hull Tactical, which as we've mentioned, is an ETF uh, that leverages the best of high-frequency trading to give retail investors the opportunity to take advantage of some of the smartest minds in all of quant analytics, whatnot in the market. So I uh, highly recommend that people take a look at halltactical.com to take the market timing test and to learn more about Hall Tactical. And on this week's episode, Rufus, we have Kevin Kelly, who's the coach that doesn't punt. Uh, we talk a lot about the recent trends of unders in the NFL and whether the market is overreacting or underreacting. And we talk a little bit about maybe why some of the root causes of why scoring might be down in the NFL. So with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, bet. Bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a out with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The Welcome to another episode of the Bet the Process podcast where Rufus's audio may be experiencing trouble but let's not call that out, right? Let's just see if they notice. Oh, wait, shoot. I already called it out. Uh, Rufus, how are you doing? How is your New York lifestyle doing? It's, you know, I'm doing well, Jeff. I'm doing well. It's New York is like Disney World for adults in the best possible way. Although I've never been to Disney World for kids. So, <laughs> well, isn't that just Disney World? Exactly. Um, well, it's a magical Disney place. World, from what I've heard is not Disney World for adults. It's the world's happiest place. I mean, everyone loves Disney World. Super uh, Bowl champion, maybe. Rufus, what do you make of this NFL trend to the under? It's getting quite a bit of play right now. Last week, I think, depending on where you got certain numbers, it was like 13, 2, and 1 to the under or something like that. Or 12, 12 2, and 1, or 13, 12, and 2, depending on what yeah, you got. Yeah, 12, 2. And, and, uh, do you know who Clev TA is or whatever? Cleve TA? He he actually posted something on Twitter that was interesting. He basically posted something about the last uh whatever 10 times that the unders, the overs lost by so much. Let me see. So uh Clev TA. I don't know who do you know who he is? Yeah, he's someone on Twitter. Okay, there you go. He I've wrote last him. week was yeah. the worst regular season week for overs since 2000. Historically, what has happened the week following a week of games that went over the total at 25% or less. So he has like a whole Jeff, he ran literally the same analysis I did. I literally took one week by week, but what's interesting is that maybe you ran the same analysis that he did. Yeah. We, we, we both apparently ran the same analysis as it was, yes. it was utterly fascinating. So what's interesting is that I need to pull up my messages. I sent to my, to, to my group about this, but you have an over under. I kind of group. thought there would be an overreaction, and what's interesting an is overreaction. I see what you did there. Yeah. Um, if you look at the look ahead lines from, like, so FanDuel had had look ahead lines up last 
Tuesday, I guess. And if you look at how those lines moved, um, overall, those lines moved 2.6 points to the under. And if you throw out quarterback injury games like the Las Vegas Chicago game, for example, it goes down to like 2.1 points of effect and no, not a single total has moved up. And so in essence, the market is saying, we think the scoring environment based on last week alone is down two points. It's not that, that last week alone though. Right. I mean, I think is well, it no, no, you can last down? week alone because oh, because you're got it, got it. Look, you're ahead, that look, yep. look yep. Jeff, I'm comparing the same games because you you can look at the like average total environment last week versus this week, but you're getting different games. I mean, for example, you have like divisional matchups; you tend to get less scoring, things like that. So even with the same teams, you're not going to have the same scoring environment. You also have weather, but my point here is the market seems to be pricing in two points of the lower scoring environment, all else equal. But what's interesting is historically, I mean, uh, yes, this is, it was the worst week for overs since in my data set, since 2000, it also, it was the lowest scoring week overall since 2014, week 15. But what I found is that I actually looked there, there's really no aggregate impact on how on essentially the record of overs and not just like the record against the spread or against the total but the actual number of points scored relative to the total. Um, there's no aggregate impact there overall. And even at the extremes, I didn't find anything. In fact, if you looked at the games with a overs were 20% or less, the, the next week overs went 51.2% in a sample size of, I believe, like 91 games. I'm trying to find the message that I sent where I did this analysis yesterday. But when you look at weeks where the over would hit over 80%, the next week, the over hit 57%. So I also wanted to see how much the market had. So basically, I didn't have look ahead lines to look at it, but I did look at how the just what the average total was compared to the week before. And, and so in those weeks where after the week, the, the extreme under weeks, the totals were down, I think, an average of 1.4 points. But it appears that the market was reacting properly. But I think that these are extreme. I mean, this is the most extreme. So I, I still tend to believe that the market is going to be overreacting a little bit. I don't think it can be worth two points. But, you know, I think actually our our interview with Kevin Kelly that's uh, that you guys will hear in a little bit gives us a little bit of insight maybe into why scoring is down. So let's talk a little bit more about that because ultimately, if you look at the data that Clev TA put out there, and even just what you're saying, it's somewhat inconclusive to sort of like whether you would want to blindly bet overs or not. I mean, I don't think we would espouse ever doing something of that sort, but let's just talk about root cause because ultimately that's what's more interesting is to understand, is this a variance of phenomenon? I mean, clearly a two point line move across the board is people believing that this isn't just variance. So maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, but are there things that you believe or that you've seen in the data or anecdotally that you think would lead to this decrease in scoring? I mean, my thought initially was, I mean, scoring has been down from its peak, which was, I think, 2020-ish around there. I actually, when we 
we recorded part of this yesterday. Right now it's Wednesday. And I actually had all this in front of me. I had this, I'd done this analysis and now I loaded a different data set. So I actually don't have it in front of me, but, but totals used to be substantially higher than they were last year. Last year, they kind of came down and in and, and unders the last few years have, have done quite well overall because that scoring environment has been on the decline. And my thought was kind of, well, it's a quarterback driven league. We have a lot, like we had sort of a quarterback era with you know Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Drew Brees, Philip Rivers. I'm not going to say Eli Manning because he sucked or was an average quarterback, but um, Ben Roethlisberger, Aaron Rodgers, all these guys that were put up prolific passing numbers and shattered all these records. I mean, if you look at the top passers of all time in terms of passing yards, like I think nine out of the ten played in the last 15 years, right? So it shifted. But honestly, I think this is worth talking about on the on the other side of our interview more, where after people can hear what what Kevin Kelly's perspective was. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's an interesting thing around the quarterback stuff because quarterbacks are playing earlier in their career um, more than ever. They didn't used to play like, you know, five, six years ago, maybe seven, eight years ago, these rookies wouldn't play, right? They would sit for a year and I think they were more ready. But again, yeah, all right. Well, we can talk about this more on the other side. I'd love to jump into the timing the market segment, which is brought to you by Hull Tactical, which is, as we've mentioned before, an ETF that leverages the best of high frequency trading to give retail investors an opportunity to leverage that uh, timing the market. But let's just say that you did have a thesis around this where you were either going to bet all the overs or you're going to bet all the unders. So let's just say that you had a thesis that the market was overreacting or underreacting. How would you think to time a strategy like that? I.e., what do you think? How do you think that the market is going to react to this reaction? In other words, that's an interesting question, Jeff. The quite like my analysis, and I'm sure Clev TA's analysis was done on on closing lines. So I guess the question becomes. Do we think the market is more overreacting now, or do you think it will overreact more this weekend? I would tend to think the overreaction is is kind of maybe now. It could be the you have less mature markets in the books, maybe anticipating that the recency of this, that there'll be more under money coming in. But I think it all comes down to that thesis, Jeff. Again, yeah. the problem, the thing is. The public does not generally like betting unders, which if we had a situation, if this, if, if the shoe was on the other foot and last week overs had gone 13 and two, and by the way, the previous week um, in real world, like the unders went 35.7%, 44% and 31% the, the three weeks before that. So if, if we had a run like this for overs, I think that you would see the market adjust up more than you're seeing it adjust down. You'd see more overreaction to the over simply because the public likes betting overs. And so that is what makes it hard for me to gauge whether the totals will move back up a little bit this weekend. Because you asked if, if I would take all overs or all unders, and I would take all overs at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think I'll answer my own question, which is if I were going to take all overs, I would have bet them at open because I do think that they'll go up and that the market will react to this overreaction because you already just see it people talking about it on twitter which causes you know that that's a harbinger of like i think what what's to come so 
Okay, that was the uh, time in the market segment. We're going to bring in Kevin Kelly right now, who is a very, very interesting guest. He's the coach that doesn't punt. And then we'll talk to you guys all again on the other side. We now welcome in to the Bet the Process podcast, Coach Kevin Kelly. Kevin, welcome to our podcast. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I was excited when I saw uh, saw you guys wanted me on. It's another one I can I can uh, be kind of proud of and kind of cool, cool, kind of a cool thing that I can brag to my son about. <laughs> there you go. You uh, are known as the coach that doesn't punt, and uh, that was sort of how you got into the the world of, you know, the analytics world and everyone started talking about that. Tell us a little bit about that reputation, uh, how you got into that and and what made you become the coach that didn't punt. Oh, uh, when I first uh, started coaching, they, I, I was kind of an abrupt, I, I was an assistant coach and the school I was at, uh, the, the president of the school called me and said, Hey, you know, we want you to be the head coach now. And I'm like, this is out of nowhere. You know, I didn't know what was going on, but when I got the job, I was excited. I remember walking back that day into the coach's office and going, Hey, what's going to be different about me that's been different about the guy before he was a pretty good coach too. And the school's never done anything. We've never been to the, been to the, been to the finals of, of the state or anything like that. So I started breaking down the program. Well, in my research, this was like 2003, it was before Moneyball came out. And uh, I think the book came out in 03 and the movie in five, and uh, I ran across a video that I saw of a, of a, it was a Harvard guy and he was doing, a, he just did like a self video and he was explaining that he thought football was, was wrong on field position and playing defense and punting and all that kind of stuff. And that got me interested. So I started working on that and I decided that that was, you know, I needed to really take a look at the game of football analytically. So did that, started not punting then, went on. And then uh, in 07, I started looking at, you know, the amount of field position you get off the onside kick. And so we started doing that as well, trying to gain those possessions. And then I was a really good play caller. You know, this is, I'm not good at anything in the world, except for I'm really good at play calling. I literally, if you, if you, I really literally think I'm probably the, one of the best people on the planet at doing that, which sounds awful that I'm, that I'm bragging on that. But that said, I knew that if we could score at a higher percentage than the other team did when we had the ball, then I need to lengthen add to the number of possessions and you do that by shortening the field and so I started going that round I got lucky and uh 09 I got asked to speak at the uh, Sloan Sports Analytics Clinic and uh 14 I did it again and this time in 14 I did a trade-off I said hey I need I need I, I want access to uh, ESPN was there and I want access, access to your data scientists so I go in a room and they've got all their computers and I really just started probing them with questions about the things that win football games the most and uh, I came up with, you know, the, the, the five or six that I thought I could affect the most in practice and getting ready for it. And part of that was had to do with play calling and designing plays that were 20 yard plays. That was actually the most at that time over who determined who's going to win a game. Uh, it was like 82%. If you had more 20 yard plays than your opponent on offense, then you won the game. So, you know, that involves play design too, not doing stop routes where your backs to the defense when you catch the ball, but more moving routes and motion routes and things like that. So, Added that in and then went on a tear as far as winning. And everybody's like, how did you get better at coaching all of a sudden? I started using numbers a lot more and using uh, analytics and, and and combining that with play design and things and a few things on defense. And and then there I was. So what was, what was like the analytical insight that unlocked that for you? You know, I, I just knew that I, I, when you, when you start looking around and this sounds like a dumb, a dumb comparison, 
dumb analogy, but there's always a better way to do things. I mean, you know, when you look, we were in a horse and buggy, and then we were in cars, then we were in nice cars, and then we were in fast cars, then we were electric cars, and same thing with airplanes, and everything develops. There's always a better way to do things, and football is young and hasn't been around, and to be quite honest, old school football coaches, and I'm old, but old school football coaches just refuse, even more than any other sport, they refuse to change, and so the la- the, the, the more they refuse to change, the more I think there's some evolution involved in the game of football, and I just think that there was a lot of room for improvement, a lot of room for improvement in efficiency. And and especially with the rules kind of now slanted towards offense, I thought there was a way to use numbers to really check out and see how we were doing. And this was long before Football Outsiders and all these analytics companies that, that came to fruition. And I thought there was a better way to do things. And uh, so I went down that road. I had an accounting background. I was majoring in accounting when I first went to college. And and uh, so, so I'm a numbers person like those anyway. So I enjoyed the research, which, you know, probed me as that became a hobby to me is to research the football. And I started looking at baseball first and the numbers there, you know, everybody was, was, was producing baseball analytics before they were at football. And that made me start doing some of my own. And I started reviewing my own stuff every year. And then it led to this. Again, if you if you kind of go back, like, is there a specific tangible example you can give of uh, analytical insight that drove a different way that you started play calling or how you managed that? Yeah, I mean, the very first one was, and, and it wasn't accepted across the board, but the very first one was when I started looking into, uh, when I saw the, and I can't remember, I don't have the film anymore, I don't have the clip, but when I saw the professor on the board, he drew a football field, and he had come up with the fact that uh, that he just thought people were dead wrong in punting. And, and, and the, the example he gave was if you're inside the 10-yard line, your own 10-yard line, and you punt the football, like, and he, he put it at like, like the three-yard line. And he showed, and he was right, the net punt when you're inside your own five is a lot shorter than the net punt when you're further away because now you bring – you don't have gunners. You bring in them as tight ends and – and really max protect the punt. So nobody's getting out and covering the punt. But the net punt then was like 34, 35 yards in the NFL and college, everything. So, and the numbers didn't vary very much. So you're giving them the ball at about the 40 yard line. Well, in college football, across all levels, even in division one, two, and three at that time, now before it was FBS, you still had, you had a 77% chance of, of scoring a touchdown if you gained the ball inside the opponent's 40 yard line. But if you gained it inside the 10-yard line, the chance to score a touchdown only went to 92. It only went up 15%. And so if you're looking at that, because the field's shorter, there's a lot of reasons for that. People struggle in the red zone sometimes. But if you looked at that and you go, that 15% chance, so what percentage would I have to make a fourth down to offset that 15%? When I started looking at it and started looking at our numbers, I formulated that we were better off, even in that extreme situation, and going for the first down rather than giving it to the opponent right there. So that was the first one that really made me want to look into it. So then I was lucky. I had an AD that was not going to fire me unless the the dragons came calling for my neck, you know, so to speak. And I sat down with him and I said, look, I'm fixing to try this on the field. You know, we're going to go for it. And here's why. And I explained to him, he said, look, I'm not going to tell you not to do it. I'm just going to say, hey, if they come for you, I'm not standing in the way because I don't believe in it either. He was an old football coach. So I started doing that and I had a lot of success in that 2003 year. 
And it didn't work the very first game I did it, but then I was calling plays differently and I quickly had to adapt. Here's what I mean. Well, the last three years, we've had a 62% completion percentage. So if it's third and 10, if I just run the plays twice, a 10-yard play, surely we'll complete one of them, you know, more than we won't, like 62%. So that itself adds up. Well, that's not the smart way to do it because, as we know, that doesn't mean what I thought it would mean. So then it made me start realizing that changing the play call on third down and on first and second down really affected the game even more. So then I was able to weave what I called then applied analytics. There's people that came out in 07, 08, and 09 with heavy football analytics. And even some, I argued with a guy last night that's, that's one of the you know uh, analytics guys. And they don't have the interwoven knowledge, so to speak, of the game itself and how you can intertwine this all together. So sometimes, and I hate to not do it, but sometimes when you apply analytics, you have to understand the game of football to really be able to apply them properly. But when I did it and it started working, that was the moment I'm like, there's way more to this than just this thing on the field position. So are you saying you would think about, you You know that you're going to go for it on fourth down, knowing that you're going to, like on a third and long, maybe have a more conservative play call? Yeah, for sure. What it, My style of play calling Forget play design, that's huge too. But my style of play calling is, to me, there's two kinds of what people call successful football teams. There's those that say, we're going to do the things we do well. And there may not be very many of them, but we're going to do them better than anybody else. Well, that's all fine and good until you meet a defense that that's their strength. And then you have a tough time. I wanted to be able to do a million things just slightly better than average and attack the weakness of the defense always. And if I'm smart enough, and I've got a little bit of a video memory. So if we line up in a three-by-one to the right, and I could see the backside linebacker was cheated out, uh, you know, a little bit leverage-wise to that, that guy, I know that's a weak spot in the run defense. Now, intertwine all that, inter- and I go on third and 10, what is their strength? Well, they've got a dime coverage in there, so throwing the ball 10 yards is not their strength. But running it, if there's five in the box and you've got a spread set, or throwing it short of the sticks, and making somebody one-on-one tackle you, especially if you're smart enough to, you know, if there's a line of defenders at the sticks and you run one guy right up at one of the safeties right at the sticks and you run the under guy, your receiver, underneath them, now when he catches it, it's going to be one-on-one open field tackling, which I think is the second hardest thing to do in football. And you're at least going to make a high percentage throw and pass and make it fourth and short, but you might make first down if he makes one guy miss. And so I intertwined all that together. And then here's the other one that nobody will factor in. That's 20 minutes a day. Go ask a coach how much they spend on punting every day and punt coverage. That's 20 minutes a day I didn't have to spend. And when you get a limited amount of practice time, you get that 20 minutes to work on whatever you needed to weakness-wise on your team, something the, the other team was doing that you haven't seen all year to work specifically on their goal line package or, your, or whatever you thought was important. I got 20 extra minutes a week. So even when the numbers say, well, here you might not should punt. I mean, you should punt. I wouldn't have to work on punting. I was getting that 20 minutes. So the numbers were even more slanted my way. Well, I would also expect that the the punting numbers are going to be very different from in high school than they are in college or the pros. I mean, and making it a much easier decision to not punt. No, they're really not. 
Really? Uh, if you if you look at the numbers, they probably vary a couple of yards from college to pro to high school, and then uh, uh, it, it, and so it's really not that big a difference. And, and and if you look and you go, well, well, defense, you know, what I've always heard is, you know, well, defenses are better in college. Well, so are the guys on offense. Well, defenses are better if you play in the SEC or the Big Ten. Well, so are the guys on offense. I mean, you know, that's yeah, why. But- and, and and the rules are slanted that way too. But punting is about how you know how far you can kick the ball, and also the whole long snapping that I mean, which I feel like is something that I don't know. I, I just remember my high school experience. I went. To, I don't know if you know. I, I went to the high school that the movie Remember the Titans was. Uh, that movie was made about my high school, and yeah. I think we won three games in four years. And our punter and our kicker was also a starting defensive lineman, and it was not not a very good kicking game. <laughs> Yeah, but, well, I th- I think you have those. I mean, I think you have those in some levels, but not if you want to be good at it. I mean, my my guy that was going to snap for field goals, he snaps every single day of the year. He's got to go out there and snap 25 yeah. balls. If you do it 25 times a day, every single day of the year, you're going to be good at it. And it's the same thing for, for uh, a strong-legged punter and things like that. I mean, you know, if you go do it every day, you're going to be good at it. And you can find a kid off the soccer team to come punt for you. Can I touch on what you said about essentially doing one thing really well and playing to your strengths versus being able to do a lot of things better than average and and being able to attack um, opponents' weaknesses? Would your strategy change there based on how talented your roster is, i.e., let's say you're Alabama or Georgia in college football and can get all the best players? Would your approach change in that regard? No, I, I, I can honestly say this. And, you, you know, you guys don't know. I can show you pictures and videos and stuff like that to kind of prove it to you. Matter of fact, if we ever sat down and you wanted to, I'll show you a game uh, uh, that where my offensive line averaged about 200 pounds. And we played a team out of Virginia. It was a college prep school. And they had 18 kids with FBS offers. And I had one. Okay. They outweighed us and, and out size and speed and all that and you can still it's still attacking the weakness to me is way better now here's my proof of that and you can't see it so i I don't know it would still be somewhat subjective even if you saw it but the best team i've ever had i had in 2011 we had three offensive linemen that were uh, 300 pounders and the other two were pretty good sized kids my quarterback was short so he didn't go to a big college. We went to Arkansas State, ended up being the Sunbelt Conference Player of the Year. His name was Freddie Knight. And, and I had Hunter Henry, who's now a tight end for the Patriots. That's the, that's the best player I've ever had. And so it was the best team I've ever had. Now, we beat everybody that we played that year by the mercy rule, which when you get to 35 points in the second half, then, it's, it, then they just run the clock so you don't beat anybody too bad. You know, you know the America's kind of pussified. Can I say pussified on here? America's kind you of pussified. You can say whatever you want. Uh, America's pussified over the years, so nobody needs to beat anybody too bad, you know. But anyway, so that rolls in. So we rolled through everybody. We went to the national passing tournament, seven-on-seven tournament. Mel Kuyper had Washington, D.C., and we won that, and we're playing against animals. I mean, just guys that are all six-five across the board receivers that people put all-star teams. We're playing with the little high school team. We rolled through those guys, and I did it exactly the same way. The beauty was I had a far better chance of making it on fourth down with those guys because we could block effectively all the time and I didn't have to be as creative and we didn't make it to fourth down. If you, if you want to look at the teams that are the best in the pros, simply pull up who runs the least third down in the NFL. 
Whoever has the least third downs, those are the guys. Well, for me, if I had less fourth downs, we're scoring touchdowns. So that year, we scored a touchdown with my starters in 92% of the time. That's a phenomenal rate compared to everybody else. So my further proof of that is, is that when I started incorporating, when I went to MIT and talked that second time, 2014, and I came back and really built our entire program around analytics, we won six of the next seven state championships. And before that, in my other 10 years, we had only won three. Now, I say only. Our school had never won any before I took over. And immediately we started doing that. Now, to further look at it, in total offense, by my last year at, at, at the school I was at, not even close to my best team, we went and played teams in Texas, really good football teams. We played Florida, played in California. And just My team averaged 643 yards a game. Okay. Now we were onside kicking and gaining possessions too. So that's a form of analytics for me. And I can tell you about that later. But if you look back and you go, okay, there's 16,000 high schools that play football. And let's just go back 50 years. So now you're at 80, you know, what, what is that? You're at actually 800,000 individual seasons of the total offensive seasons. My team has 12 of the top hundred out of those 800,000. And to me, that's the play calling, the using fourth down, the using analytics to design and create, and to know the analytics of play calling. You talked about going into play calling, you know, using motions or speeding up the offense. There's a myriad of things that analytics shows really helps on offense, catching motion routes instead of stationary routes, all those things. If you do that and you can attack the weaknesses of the defense and do the other things just moderately well, then you can end up really helping yourself have a better chance to make first downs, touchdowns, and win the game. So a couple of things on this. One, obviously what you're doing is, or the, the inefficiency that you sort of have extracted is the value of field position or yards kind of in between the 20s kind of thing. Like it, it seems like that's something that people overvalue versus possession. So that would lead you to why the onside kick situation is the way it is, because it's probably that additional field position just isn't worth the opportunity that you have of getting a, um, you know, an onside kick in the NFL, where we've been talking a little bit about how scoring is down and, and how we think it'll continue to, it, it seems like it's, it's, it's a real trend, but we'll, we'll see what happens throughout this year maybe this doesn't work quite as well because ultimately the scoring environment is not as, as such as it is that you've created kind of in high school. But what, what do you think about if you go back to this idea of this third down, because part of what you're preying on here is this idea that, that teams are thinking or not thinking that you're going to go for it on fourth down. So they are valuing stopping you over like preventing as many yards as possible. If they are keen to the idea that you are going to continue to go for it on fourth down, they would play probably a different defense, correct? Yeah, they probably would. Now, what makes that unique is, is there's two things that are still kind of wrong with that. Here's what I mean by that. If they play a different defense and don't let you have the underneath because they're thinking, you know, that you're not going to use fourth down, that also allows you now to vertically space those guys. Okay, what I mean by that is I made my living. It's really not that hard. I made my living by... Uh, and I wish I should have brought up some plays to show you. I didn't know where we were going with this. I was in a four and five receiver set a lot, even the fifth one out of the backfield. 
and I used two of the eligible receivers to run them into an area where the guys surrounding the defender I wanted to attack was. And then I either high-low that defender with a curl and a post over the top or a dig route underneath and a post over the top or, or a crossing and a dig behind him. We high-load or horizontally spaced, so we vertically or horizontally spaced one defender against any zone, okay? If we just talk zone at first. If you reduce and want to stop us, you know, play it differently on third down because you know we're going to use fourth down, now you've opened up the entire field so we can still take high percentage positions over the top of you. And I don't mean 40-yard bombs, but 20 and 25-yarders, especially by manipulating you with motion, holding inside and outside defenders with two guys, and vertically or horizontally spacing you with two guys. It's really not hard to do. Where the NFL scoring is going down is we are, and if you'll look, there's a big trend towards less air yards on their throws, okay? And the best place to throw a football, the weak spot of almost all defenses, because look at NFL linebackers. They're animals. I mean, they're so fast, so strong, so good. But they're still coached heavily and hard and go to any NFL practice, and I've been to a million of them. And uh, was even with the Patriots for a, a little bit of short time. And I've been up there for weeks at a time. And everybody coaches their guys. Go downhill on runs. So the linebackers have to come downhill to stop a run. And the best spot is behind the linebackers in front of the safety with play action. It's the best analytical play in the game of football, the play action pass. And the weakest spots are between the numbers and, and behind the linebackers in front of the safeties. And NFL teams don't use that nearly enough, except for look at the Dolphins. Tell me they're not throwing behind the linebackers and in front of the safeties more than anybody else. Now we see the Tyreek Hill with dummies that still go press coverage on them and no safety on the top. God help their defensive coordinator. I don't know what that guy's thinking when he does that. And they run right past. He's open by five yards. But look at a lot of his in-breaking routes. And even, even uh, Sunday, the Raiders. The Raiders, they had to put in Brian Hoyer for Garoppolo, he goes in, he goes four out of four on in-breaking routes for like 84 yards because they're in front of the safeties behind the linebackers. You're just running them through windows. And that spacing, think about it. You got seven guys if you're rushing four. If you can throw it 40 yards down the field, you've got seven guys guarding 2,000 square yards. They've got to guard a 30-yard box each, square yard box each. That's impossible if you run efficient quality routes and your guys understand spacing. Even with Brian Hoyer as a backup, they did that to New England's defense. And I know their offense isn't, isn't good right now, but the defense isn't bad. And they were able to do that with a backup quarterback who hadn't practiced all week because on in-breaking routes, you're behind the linebackers in front of the safeties, and the ball's not in the air very long. Defenders don't have time to break on the ball like they do. I mean, a 20-yard pass from a guy five yards and a shotgun over the middle is a 25-yard pass. Uh, the same distance to the sideline, you know, that's 32 yards. That's a lot longer. The ball's in the air longer. They got more time to react to it. And there's no run after catch usually on the sideline. So there's a lot of factors that, that, that can do that. But if they change the way they were doing it, and I don't think they would change as much as some people think they would. But if they did, that still opens up third down to bigger plays too. But it changes first and second down too. So why, in talking about the NFL then and the play calling, and this is obviously one of the quintessential things, right? When Whenever you hear like this insight on play on play calling, like teams play action or, you know, this these in-breaking routes and things like that, 
the NFL is a copycat league. Why aren't more teams doing this right now? Why aren't more teams looking at what Miami's doing? I mean, obviously they don't have the Tyree kills and the Jalen Waddles and the Mostert's and all that speed that probably allows like, so, I mean, obviously the theory here is that because of that speed, the safeties are deep there. And ultimately Miami has more room between the linebackers and safeties than other teams do to some degree, but like, why aren't more teams doing this? To some degree, but here's, here's, it all comes down to a couple things. One is just be honest, the male ego. It's easy to go, well, Miami has Jalen Waddle and Tyreek Hill. And, and that's what most coaches do. Well, they got those guys. Those guys can do whatever they want to. But it's like uh, in, Annie Duke, in Annie Duke's book, Thinking with Bats, it's a little bit of resulting, as she calls it in there. And they're looking at the results and go, well, they've just got those guys. We can't do that. Instead of looking at why it's working, Tyreek Hill is going to be open on those in-breaking routes by four yards because the safeties are scared he's going to turn it up deep on them. So he's not going to have anybody within four yards of him. Well, a slower – I mean, the difference between a 4-3 in the 40 and a 4-4-5 in the 40 is only about this far. So they're still going to be open by two yards on the same exact route. And that's the problem is people make excuses. It's risk aversion, too, because throwing the ball in the middle, you just see a lot of defenders in there. But what you're not seeing is there's more space in relation to that, and you can be just as open, and the ball is not in the air as long. People just have risk aversion, too much risk aversion, and they like to go, well, they can do it because they've got studs. They've got Jamar Chase. They've got Jalen Waddell and Tyreek Hill. And they just write it off as that. So it's a combination of risk aversion, a combination of resulting. Rufus, other questions? Oh, if you were a defensive coordinator, what would you do to try to stop yourself? The only way to stop us, and, it, it, and it's been proven, I lost, I don't know, like two games in my last four years or whatever. We went to Utah and we played a team out of Salt Lake City. And they had just gone out and they'd beat De La Salle, which was, was always a really good team in California. And, and they had a three-man rush that could get to our quarterback quickly, quickly. We, you know, I taught my quarterback. The other thing is pre-snap reading with the quarterback and be able to get the ball out, the, get the ball out in 2.5 seconds or less. Look at Tua. He's throwing the ball down the field with the most air yards, but he's getting the ball out faster on average than any other quarterback in the NFL right now. Now think about that. That means he is much better at his pre-snap read, and I call it probably. My quarterbacks, when they walk up to the line, they have a probably. They'll look at the defense, and if you've ever played Madden football or NCAA football on PlayStation, you can lay the lines on the field of where the receivers are going to run. And you can look at the leverage and go, well, God, that guy's going to be open right there when he breaks because of where the linebacker is and where the safety's lined up. My quarterbacks, I teach them to do that. And so when they drop, if I can get their probably right, like 75% of the time where they're right on their pre-snap read where it's probably going to go, I make them start to throw on their probably as soon as they catch the ball. And then they're making a read on that defender. If he jumps it, and then the other guy beside him that we horizontally space is open, they just pull it back down and throw it to him real quick. And that first initial movement of the throw, although we want to throw it then, is a beautiful pump fake, which is a very hidden gem that not as many people are using the NFL anymore. But it's a beautiful pump fake to really get the guy to overcommit and open up that guy even more. So the ability to rush with three guys and still drop eight and you know have them pretty disciplined – is the way you stop us. 
it's not blitzing. We have great blitz packages. You better be able to run against blitz and screen and do all these things well. You better be able to use motion well. You better be able to have your quarterback get pre-snap reads and get the ball out quickly like Tua is right now. And I think he's doing really good pre-snap reads instead of just RPO stuff. Some of it's quick because it's RPO, but some of it, he's got a good dang idea where the ball's going because he can look at the defense and he lays those lines on the field and he goes, oh God, that's going to be open because we're running that safety off with Jalen Waddle and we're bringing Tyreek Hill underneath. And he's in-breaking is going to get open on that defender who's got outside leverage and scared he's going to run four verts on it. Does that make sense? Am I making Yeah, it makes sense? total no, sense. No, it makes so, a lot of sense. Okay. So as you have progressed in your career, and obviously you had a, a stint in college, like how how, how did this translate and, and sort of like, where do you think that this type of thinking is there a ceiling to it or is, is it like it, you know, obviously we talked about Mike McDaniel so that he's incorporating a lot of the stuff. Like what, where, how do you think about this for you going forward and and then just the real implementation at higher levels? You know, it, it's, I mean, I did a bad job when I went to college for that year. And what I mean by that is, is, is I, I first and foremost want to say that I didn't get to meet all my players till August the 7th because I was at a school I didn't know they took away all the scholarships and all the kids left that were scholarship players and and I didn't get to meet my kids till August 7th they don't do summer school there where the kids come to college so I didn't even meet them so we had four weeks to prepare for the season we go on they didn't really believe I didn't get a chance to win them over in spring or summer and so they didn't even really believe it that's that's half the battle to be a good football coach you got to get them to believe in your system but even then, I'll say, and we weren't very good, but we're still first in the country in passing and third in the country in total offense that year. And that's with, you know, guys that probably uh, just tried hard but couldn't, weren't very good and couldn't be playing for another, another team. Now, that all said, I think that we're just now touching. I, I think that Miami, if they can continue to do this, and guys like Mike McDaniel that are not afraid to do anything, anywhere, anytime are really opening up. And if they're able to maintain that long enough, and we are a copycat league in the NFL that copies them, we're really going to see the evolution of offenses go up even higher. Now, that's not to say that on the same side, the NFL won't come back and slant the rules back the other way, because over the past few years, they've trended them towards the offense. I mean, guys aren't scared to go across the middle anymore because a safety can't come run through them like they did in the past. And we're not scared to throw it in the middle as much because they know the guy's not going to run through and kill our guy or, you know, hit him and make the ball pop up in the air for an interception or a fumble or anything like that. So, but as long as the rules stay the same, I really think we're just scratching the surface of what this could look like because really there's only a handful of teams right now that are not afraid to throw the ball in the middle, anytime, anywhere, any place. And Kansas city's one of them, although it's a lot to Travis Kelsey with his back to the defense. Uh, but if they would do more without his back to the defense, which they do some and the Cincinnati Bengals do a good job of it. Uh, the Rams, you know, when they're confident in their receivers, they do a lot of it. And uh, outside that, there's not a lot of other teams that do it as consistently but my, my problem with the Rams and some of these other teams are they'd be even better if after a first down incompletion they didn't feel like they had to run the ball on second and 10 which is one of the dumbest things you can do but they all do it and uh, or a lot of them do it a lot and uh, then they're put themselves in third and long and you put yourselves in third and long and pin the ears back on an Aaron Donald or somebody like that or, or a Micah Parsons 
you know, your quarterback can't even think straight because he knows he's got to have the ball out or he's going to get murder, murder, kill, killed like, like Justin Herbert did last night at the end of that game. So I think they're just scratching the surface. I hope more teams continue to copy it because it's fun offense to watch. But you do have to have a really highly intelligent play caller. And you also have to have one. I know some NFL OCs that their language is too long. It slows down the game. You know, speeding up the game helps too, but it, but it, but it drags out. It, it, it shortens the number of plays you can run in a game because the language is too long. It'll be like jet five right, shift to ace T, T motion left, Z shift, A bubble, Y hitch, Z eight, X post corner. And you're like, what the freak? The difference I had was that play for me was twister. And everybody needs to know where the freak they're going. You know, I don't need to call out 500 things. We practice the motion. We know what we're doing. And so I think the other thing they need to do is shorten their language and come up with six different words each week that mean that play and at least have 15, 20 plays that are different that you can call out one word to, get up to the line, run it quick, check to it. Another way I made my living the last two years that, that I was in high school was you know, you'll look and somebody will change their play and they'll move their offensive formation. Then the defensive coordinator, he'll look out there and the linebacker will look at him or he's talking and they'll check their defense to match that. I discovered if you can run a play within four seconds of changing your offensive play, the defense can never change plays. They'll try it first and you catch them out of, you catch them out of position, you got an easy touchdown. But if you can do it in four seconds, so I would yell out, so if we had a play called Twister that I, like, that I wanted to run in this situation – that week, we, can, we might call it Twister or Typhoon or Tornado or Hurricane. And if I yelled that out, it was everybody got set and went ready, go. And we were, we were running the ball while we had a huge void for that particular play in that particular defense. And I think that's the next thing that you might see. Because as Mike McDaniel, I don't think this is his ceiling as he develops even more, maybe that's where he goes next. And if everybody else follows, because I think we're just on the trend of what it could be. That's really interesting. And it's funny. I mean, when I think back to like the the Patriots and the Colts of, let's say, 10 to 15 years ago, the best Patriots offense, like their their whole thing was Brady got up to the line and went really quick and was able to catch defenses off guard. And I think a lot of it now, I mean, you have a lot more young quarterbacks in the league now who I think are probably not as comfortable or, I mean, I'm guessing that's sort of an acquired skill to be able to read things and change really quickly. And so. I, yeah. I mean, and you just, you hit on something that is absolutely crucial in two ways. One, the RPO is killing the knowledgeable quarterback. You know, a coach wants him to walk up there and, you know, put the ball in the belly of the running back and read the outside linebacker. And if the linebacker steps in, you're pulling it out and throwing it to the slant or the hitch or the bubble. And if he doesn't step in, you're leaving it there. So they're running, you know, I mean, there were some teams in college last year that ran 80% of their plays as RPOs, 80% or more. And you're like, your quarterback doesn't have to learn anything about defenses except for where's the will linebacker on this play? Oh, there he is. Okay, that's who I'm watching. That's taking away from their understanding of defenses. Coaches did it. In my opinion, I, and I'm a coach, and I love coaches. I love the brotherhood. I love this. We created that because, A, maybe it has some positives, but, B, so we could blame the quarterback for being wrong. Well, he put the ball – he left the ball in. He should have pulled it out and thrown it right there instead of the coach calling the play and being responsible for the bad decision-making. But the other part of that is – so that's one. We've hurt quarterbacks and their understanding of defense is coming out of college. 
in high school. And two is we have completely forgotten how important a quarterback coach and an offensive coordinator can be, not on just designing plays and calling plays, but getting their quarterback to really understand the important things about that play, their offense, and game situations. I wore my quarterbacks out, and that's why I've only had one quarterback, I think, since 2003 that was didn't throw for 4,000 yards in a season, and way over half of them threw for 5,000 yards every season. They were prepared mentally. They understood defenses, and they saw as soon as that defense was out there and I called a play, they knew what we were trying to attack. They knew the defender, they knew that, and they knew the situation, and they understood defense to the point where Mike Leach called me down one time. I had to go, he put me on a plane. I went and visited him. He's like, I want to know what you're talking to your quarterback about because your guys understand defenses better than anybody I've ever seen. And I think we're missing that now with quarterback coaches. You know, I, you know they, they had the horse whisperer and these kind of whispers. I really think that that might be, you know, one of, my, one of the other things I do well is quarterback whisper get the guy to understand the significance of not holding the ball of living to play another day but of understanding before it's counterintuitive for a quarterback that gets hit three times to look down the next play and see if anybody's coming because that takes time then he's got to look back up find the guy but that's what they do because we fight something called self-preservation like the reason we won't grab a hot stove once you know because we know it's there your brain won't let you do it you know your brain won't let you not look down very easily and let you learn how to fight that but it's counterintuitive, and people do it over and over and over, but that's because they're not being educated on how to avoid that in the first place. Quarterback coaches are far more important now than they ever have been, and some teams don't even have them anymore because they let the OC be that guy. Well, if you can be that guy and the quarterback coach, good. But if you can't, you've got a real problem on your hands, and we're seeing that more and more and more. That's a very interesting second order of effect of, of the RPOs and sort of offense, the, the way offenses have changed in high school and in college that's kind of being seen in the NFL now. It is, it is a league that truly comes from the bottom up. People used to say it did it, but it does. It comes from high school up. And that's what you're seeing now with the more fourth downs. You're seeing the RPO came from high schools and that moved its way up into college. And now the NFL is doing a lot of it too. And uh, it's funny that the best coaches are supposed to be in the NFL and then college and then high school, when I think everybody would tell you that the ones in college are just great recruiters. There are some good coaches, but the vast majority probably percentage-wise aren't any better than high school coaches because high school coaches, you've got to get what you have. And you better morph it around them. You better be able to coach some ball because I can't get a 6'5 left tackle every year. I can't get a receiver that can just beat you on a go route ever. And that's the part that really slows football down to me is, is the way that it filters up and then these guys get it and they, and, and they just go with it hard and don't understand why it was created. They just understand it works. We're going to put that in. We just got to read one guy. This is easy, but it takes away from the overall development of players. Awesome. So uh, last question for you, Kevin, what, what is in store for Kevin Kelly? You know, I, uh, I took, some time off when uh, uh, I was up and uh, spent some time with the Patriots and uh, left there, just came back home, really just wanted a break after my college experience and uh, started a business called Kid Champion that I train, I, I train, we're a motor skills development for two to tens and 55 and ups of all things. We skipped that middle ground. 
and uh, so I'm training them and some of the things I know how to do, and and I've got a staff, and we're trying to put a couple of those in. In the meantime, I'm writing articles for football. I'm training some kids around, and I'm studying film and consulting coaches. So I spend a lot of time. I've gone to a couple of colleges and spoken to their staffs, but I'm probably going to get back in as soon as we get this up and running. So you know, probably next year, the year after, probably this coming this coming a year from now, I might be back in coaching which is, you know, my love and my passion. I don't know if you could tell that from the way I'm talking, but I love coaching. I love, I love a group of guys focused on one goal. I love the locker room because nothing matters, politics, race, religion, nothing matters if you can come together in the locker room. None of that crap matters. And I love the fact that when you get somebody to buy in to your way to do things, and then you can have intelligent conversations and reasoning on why it's going to work, and you can get them to believe in things that they didn't think was possible and do things on the field that people didn't think was possible. And uh, I love every part of it. All right, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Fascinating stuff. We'd love to follow you where people can find you on Twitter. I think you have some good stuff on there. What's your handle there? Coach Kelly with an EY, the number one. Coach Kelly with an EY one, uh, and that's at Coach Kelly one. So I post some analytic stuff when it's a team I like, like I'm a Cowboys fan, have been forever. Oh, then I just post some subjective awesome. analysis, awesome. <laughs> not objective, <laughs> but subjective analysis. Well, thanks Can for joining us. On, are you guys NFL fans at all? Yeah, of yeah. course. We Which are. fans? What's your team? I'm a, I'm a fan of the Patriots. I grew up in Boston. So yeah, you grew, I grew up in Boston. Okay. I grew up a Redskins fan. Yeah. Man, you've had I mean, it's been, it's painful to be a Patriots anymore, fan but... right now. It is painful, painful to be. That's what I, I, I love, Bill, and he's my friend, and he's been super awesome to me and my family and, and all that kind of stuff. I hate what they're going through right now because we just had a bad run of decisions and things like that. But he really is the greatest coach that's ever coached a game. And, and, and I can honestly say that. And I hate that it's being taken away from now. Well, maybe he was. Maybe it was all Brady. That stuff drives me insane. I don't care how, and I love Tom Brady. He's been super nice to me and my, and my family too, but I, I love him. And I do think he's the greatest of all time, but they just showed you what happens when two greats come together. They would have been, I think they both, Tom showed you as he got away, some of the things he learned from Bill, but Bill is the greatest and he is a savant. Like he is extremely intelligent about football and, 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 and knows things that other people don't even think about. I think at the same time, I think Brady was able to do that and teach some people too. The Patriots will be back before it's over with. So uh, Jeff, well, I'm going to ask you one question on the Belichick thing though. That's constantly drives me crazy. Why, why is he so conservative on fourth down calls these days? Why I is mean, he kicking not field these goals? days. It's he's always been pretty damn. No, he, there was a period. He was the first one that really went for that really controversial fourth down against Indianapolis, Indianapolis. In, his, in, his, in his own, in his own territory at the 30 or whatever. That's true. Who was his OC at the time? That wasn't McDaniel. It was probably Charlie. This is it was 09. probably Charlie. It was probably Charlie Weiss. Would be my guess. Oh nine. Okay. Was it Charlie Weiss or was it not Josh? It could have been I Josh. Don't think it would have been Josh. Yeah, it could really. have been Josh. Anyway, but you're right. I, I, he was very analytical on that. I, I think the answer is pretty obvious in this. I don't, and I'm not speaking for him. I I would never speak for him. But just watching it right now, I would say. He trusts his defense more than he does his offense right now. And, you know, you could look at that the opposite way and go, well, if you don't trust your offense, maybe you need four downs. But I don't think that's it. I, th I think it is that he trusts his defense more than his offense right now. 
Yeah. I just and think he puts maybe, his offense. Maybe in with a, good reason. I think he puts his offense in a bad position with the way he with the way with how conservative he is. I mean, I think like not allowing Mac to throw early down play action, which is probably the easiest time to throw, I would guess. He he doesn't do that, right? He runs a lot and he gets Mac into these. I mean, like all NFL teams seem to do this with with rookie quarterbacks where they run, they run, and then when they allow him to pass, it's an obvious passing down third and nine, third and ten, and you know no one's going to do well in that situation. Yeah, nobody's going to consistently do well in that situation, and uh, you know I, I can't speak to that, and 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 I, I just I just know that that uh, you and I both want him to get better because as big fans, you know it's tough to watch right now. For sure. All right, Kevin, thanks for joining us. Uh, you know, good luck on things, and we'll keep following you and keep interacting on Twitter. All right. Appreciate it. Hope I didn't babble too much. Thank no, you it was guys. great. That's Thank fantastic. You. Thank you so much. Right. That was our interview with Kevin Kelly. Interesting guy for sure. I, I like the juxtaposition of, or not like the, you know, the analytics combining with sort of the on field play calling. We, we've been trying to figure out someone to get on to talk about play calling because ultimately everyone on Twitter is a play calling expert. And so um, understanding like the nuances and the challenges around it. Uh, what, what were your takeaways from that interview, Rufus? I love that interview. I think I, I learned a lot from it. I think that second order effects um, are, are the sort of my biggest takeaway overall. Like the fact that if you change one thing, these other things will change that maybe we don't think about downstream. So part of it was his play calling for, uh, you know, the play calling on, on first and second and third down, knowing you're going to go forward on fourth down. But I think the most interesting thing is, is sort of a thing we talked about a little bit on the other side of the interview is the scoring environment and, and his sort of, I don't want to say his thesis, but what he said about RPOs and quarterbacks now not having to read defenses and be quick with like not being able to sort of change the play at the line really quickly um, I think that might be kind of our answer on as to why sort of score, what, why scoring has been down, not just this year, but uh, the last few years relative to what it had been. So an offense is less efficient because they're running more RPOs and there's less pre-snap reads where people are actually making changes. I mean, this is something that'd be no, great. It's to... not that, but it's, I mean, I, I, lo I loved what he said about if you can change a play and snap it within four seconds, the defense can't adjust. And if, but basically you don't have quarterbacks. Now you have young quarterbacks coming into the league and play, playing sooner that are not really capable of doing that. And they haven't, ha that's not a skill set that they sort of learned. Whereas in the past, that was a skill set quarterbacks learned. So I think it's in essence, it's fed up from sort of high school, college, the way, the way football is being played there now with more RPOs and stuff like that. And less, it's less quarterback centric, less quarterbacks having to, read defenses and, and, and make calls at the line and, and more systems where you just ask the quarterback to do these few things. Do you think an increase in athleticism at the quarterback position has been positive or negative for scoring? Um, it's a good question. I, well, again, I think in a vacuum, you would expect it to be positive, but also it's changed the way the game's played and, and you're going to have more running, which also is going to mean less scoring typically because the clock will be running more. So I, I think that's, I mean, and then the whole second order effect of the fact that these quarterbacks are not being taught to do the 
the same things that they were in the past, which we think those things might like help scoring. I mean, I, I certainly think playing fast helps scoring and you had the elite offenses of the last, I don't know. I mean, of let's say the 2010 to 2020 era, those elite offenses oftentimes would play very fast. Yeah. One, uh, one thing that I was thinking about from his analysis that I thought was interesting was just the idea of going forward on fourth down deep in your own, um, territory, which I've always obviously thought, you know, like inside the 20 yard, your own 20 yard line, I thought that would be akin to death, but you know, I saw something this weekend in that Texas A&M, uh, Tennessee game that made me that resonated a lot with what he was saying, which was ultimately that, you know, Tennessee was winning, sorry, Texas A&M was winning that game. I think they were winning by a field goal. They got the ball like inside their own five yard line. Were incredibly conservative, basically almost playing for a punt. They ended up not getting quite enough room to punt, meaning like, you know, you typically need to be at the five yard line to have a comfortable punt. Um, they were, I think, at their own two or three yard line. And, you know, they they punted, which I think was like, they felt like a moral victory. And they also were so fr- afraid of getting the punt blocked. Now, now, I think Tennessee did something very smart where they didn't go for the block. They instead, you know, played for a return. They looked like they were going to go for a block, which made the punter rush. And he got a terrible punt off and ended up um, being a punt return for a touchdown. And it's, it's just an interesting highlighting. I mean, obviously this is like results-based analysis, which we always make fun of on the show, but I think the idea that the difference of giving them the ball at the 35 yard line versus all the bad things that could have happened, i.e. turning the ball over at the 10, 15, giving up a safety, all that kind of stuff, or even giving them the ball at say the 10 yard line, they are marginally better than punting in a situation like that, where you're probably going to give them the ball at the 35 yard line or the 40 yard line at best. Right. It's like, it's interesting because I think that's one of the things that Kevin was kind of saying, go ahead, Rufus. I will say though, he said like teams that start inside the 40 score at this, whatever rate, and then inside the 10, this rate, but like the inside the 40 does also includes inside the 10. So I think it would be more interesting to sort of see the nonlinearities if we broke it down by, uh, by sort of like five yard increment or something like that. Maybe he did do that. Maybe that wasn't that analysis. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that I'm not saying he didn't. I'm saying the number he quoted though, doesn't tell me that. Right. 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 Yeah. I, I think it's interesting. And again, like, like going back to this idea of like understanding what is going on in the NFL with scoring and if is it real or are we going to like turn around next weekend? I mean, what do you think is more likely that you and I are sitting here next week going, Oh, NFL's fixed again. They scored a normal amount of points. Like it's not, I mean, I think that the the fact that the scoring environment has gone down, as you said, like it's just been going down and down. And, and the perception is, that they're making rules that are good for the defense, right? Like everyone's saying that, like, oh, you can't hit guys over the middle. And, you know, there's all this. That's you know, a good rule for the offense if you can't hit guys over the middle. That's what I'm saying. Sorry. Everyone's perception is they're making good rules for the offense, right? That that they've changed this into like a, you know, flag football league or something like that where you can't hit and all this kind of stuff. And so, but the numbers would say it's the opposite, that the defense really has an advantage. Yeah. But I mean, I think last week though, is an anomaly regardless 
mean, there was an average of 36.7 points scored per game. I mean, the week before that, when overs were only 35.7%, you still had an average score of 45 and an average total of 45 as well. You also did have windier games last week. I think the average wind speed was 9.1 miles per hour, whereas it hadn't really, like the week before that, it was six. The week before that, it was five. Like, so weather definitely played a role, a little bit at least. But we we yeah. talked a lot about the weather last week, but what 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 was your what was your takeaway from the weather? Because everyone says we're now a meteorology podcast. Oh, I mean, no one's actually matters. saying that. I just meant. <laughs> that. I mean, it, apparently, it didn't matter that much though, because like every game went under. So, well, I'm talking now about college because we we spent a lot of time talking about the college, right? Like I took. Ohio over what 44 is my pick of the week because that was the one that went from like 57 to 44. Um, it, it did not win. It did not win. Uh, Although Northern Illinois just boat raced them in the second half, which was cool. Northern Illinois is one of my few picks on sides this week. That's yeah, last week. We did not have a ton. And we, Jeff, last week, I think you and I were victimized by some Hail Marys. I had West Virginia minus two and a half, which lost on a hail mary and then i had that sort of, it was the uh the boise, boise, state, boise under. state under where there were there were what 21 points scored in the last four minutes or something boy or all, all by colorado the same state team. all by down. the same all by the yeah. same team colorado which is state the really was down 20 part. points with four and a half minutes to go and and they on a hail mary won the game which made my total push yeah not so great that's so okay Okay, so uh, picks of the week. I guess we can do that. Who you, who you got? Um, I actually went three and two on Tony Kornheiser's show last week, so at least at least got back out of the 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 red from a standpoint. I'm still, I think, fourteen and ten for the sorry, fourteen and twenty for the year, maybe. Okay. So, so I, I intentionally tried to lose in all my circumillions picks last week, but. And I, um, I went with, because I want to get that booby prize for the worst quarter. And I overall did a okay job. Like I just went for the games where the line was moving, like where you got like bad line move value. I think overall I had one entry that went two and three, another went two and three, one that went three and two, two and three, two and three. So, you know, not, not what I was looking for, Jeff. I needed, I wanted a one and four or oh and five in there, but even when I try to lose, when I try to lose, I can't lose enough. I'm going to take the Rams minus the three. Rams minus three. I like that bet actually. Yeah, I think the Rams are pretty good. I don't think the Steelers are very good. That's my that's my sharp analysis right there. So that's a that's a great analysis. I'm pulling up my unabated odds screen here so that I can quote a a good number. And that minus three is spot on. Consensus minus three, even money. Mm-hmm. There you go. I'm not going to take Tampa Bay because I take them every week, although it is a good spot because I feel like I've been low on the Falcons as well. I'm going to take Minnesota plus seven. Although mm-hmm. it looks like there's actually, that's a seven shaded towards the Vikings a little bit. Although definitely, it, is, definitely it looks like Kirk, it's moving that way. It's a Kirk Cousins primetime game though, which, you know, his record, like he's apparently like never won a primetime game or something like that. But I mean, I think San Francisco is 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 an elite team, maybe the best team in football. But the Vikings have actually been better than the record 
although I'm sure that's priced into the market, but my number is 4.8. So, and I have to get out a pick. Do you know that Justin Jefferson's not playing? I do know that. Is that factored into your, your it's model? factored into my number. Do you think he has an impact on the point spread? I think he does. I don't think it's a two one, point. One and, one and a half points? I don't know. I mean, 1. I, 1 I, would, I would, I would say less than that, but that's, I mean, I'm sure there's people, smart people that have an argument that would maybe poke a hole in my analysis or my quote analysis. You couldn't see my air quotes. Right. Uh, anything else you want to talk about this week, Rufus? I think that's it. All right. Well, thanks all for listening. Uh, stay tuned for a quick interlude with, CEO of Hull Tactical, Petra Bakasova. Um, and then we'll talk to you guys all again next week. Tell us a little bit about how you got into this world of finance, especially like specifically, I mean, I think applied math is just this awesome field now that um, you can do so much from. And so as you thought about what you did with an applied math background, how did you think about finance and, and, and broadly as the place to go? Sure. Um, hi, Jeff. Hi, Rufus. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I guess my background and how I ended up in finance, I was always good at math and I never wanted to be a math teacher. So that took me a, a little bit to figure out, like, what do you do when you're good at math and you don't particularly want to be in a classroom all day long? And then I realized there's a lot of applications to math and, and one of them being finance and econ and that's where I sort of like found my passion. I was always really excited about econ and uh, obviously University of Chicago had a really strong financial math program. So I joined that. And then if you graduate with a degree in financial math in Chicago, there's a really good chance one of the Chicago trading firms will sweep you up and, and you'll get a job there. So I sort of just follow the path of everybody else from the program. And then two trading firms later, I ended up working with Blair and, and and here I am. What do you, as someone Blair, that's kind of like a little bit of the opposite of you, right? He's not necessarily an academic by, by nature, right? And he had a lot of practical knowledge. What do you gain most from working with him? Or what do you, what do you think that the yin and yang of working together is? Yeah, so I mean, I wouldn't, you know, sell Blair short. I don't know if people know this, but he was a trained math teacher at, at one of, you know, an earlier point in his life. So he is pretty, you know, math savvy. Uh, but it's it's fascinating to work with him and to like really appreciate just how quick he is with, you know, understanding all the underlying math and being able to like distill somewhat complicated models into really simple concepts and and that's what i appreciate you get a lot of math phds and they can write beautiful papers on crazy complicated models and then when it comes to you know translating what they see in the market they're, they're lost and then blair's like the opposite of that crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic the bottom line is watered down it seems like they don't get it puppeteers are put to end just running off a leaded none of it's organic it all sounds synthetic That's this episode of that the process is brought to you by hull tactical the hosts of this podcast are not investors with hdaa and we're not directly compensated for their views however 
however, HTAA sponsored this podcast. The hosts and sponsors share a conflict of interest because the sponsor paid a one-time cash compensation for the content of the podcast, and the hosts may be incentivized to endorse or promote HTAA's investment management services. Massey Peabody rankings. We're looking for the edge. Analytically driven. Crunching all the numbers.